Romans chapter 12. For those of you that are familiar with the book of Romans, uh, we concluded the doctrinal portion of this treatise on the gospel last week. And for the rest of this year, we're going to be focusing on the remainder of the chapters and verses in this book. And um, probably finishing up just shy of Christmas time uh, together. Mrs. Howell, it's great to see you back with us. We've been praying for you and your family. And um, glad you made it back safely from Tennessee and praying for you during the, as you grieve the loss of your pops. That's what my kids call me anyway, your father, and glad you're back with us safely. And I think we would be remiss if we didn't take a moment as I uh, continue in prayer here for the service to also pray for our youth group and college and career who are combining together this year to have a missions trip to Houston, Texas. Um, we have a, 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 yet another opportunity to help uh, Arise Baptist Church there uh, as their ministry of outreach continues to expand. Um, the Lord brought in His good sovereignty uh, the tragedy of a hurricane, but with every tragedy there's opportunity. And uh, we've already had multiple boots on the ground there, so to speak, as a church, and we have an opportunity now to send two of our fellowship groups here at Grace to Houston at the end of this month to continue in gospel efforts and encouraging not just that church but other churches and I talked to Pastor Cover about two weeks ago and he said he's already got about five I believe he said five other pastors that are coming to the Florida fellowship this year uh, to be encouraged and we're looking forward to networking the state of Texas together for the gospel's sake so uh, let's pray for that effort as we pray for uh, the preaching of God's Word this morning, okay? Father in heaven, I pray that you'd be with Pastor Steve and Pastor Mike as they lead this sweet group of young saints to, to minister the gospel in Texas at the end of this month. And uh, certainly, Lord, we pray for their physical safety and for their spiritual safety and for their spiritual growth. We, we know oftentimes in these trips, Lord, the opportunity to be encouraged by those who are already in Houston that know you is greater than the opportunity that we have to encourage them. But I pray, Lord, that there would be a mutual spiritual encouragement that the Word of God as it's taught in these groups and preached from the pulpit while they're there would have free course and rapid advance in the hearts of all who hear it. Pray, Lord, for more sincere opportunities to cast gospel seed. We pray that gospel seed that's already been cast would be watered and that there would be fruit harvested as a result of these months now of investment in that community. And maybe, maybe even some of our youth will be able to observe that harvest because of seed that was planted hours after the hurricane was over. Maybe through prayer and diligent efforts of those folks, we'll have the privilege of seeing folks come to save that come to know Christ and be saved that heard the gospel months ago. Whatever your will is, I pray that you would wisely allow us to be part of it. And uh, pray that you return uh, this faithful group of young people to us 
you would hear of good tidings of their opportunity to, to serve you in that portion of our country. We thank you, Lord, for the Howells being back with us today, and we ask, Lord, that you continue to strengthen them and the inner man as they continue to grieve the loss of her father. And we thank you, Lord, for those who are back in our midst who had surgery recently and for those who are not fully recuperated yet, who are worshiping over the live stream today. I pray that their hearts would be encouraged and their bodies healed continuously. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Most of you would agree that we are the world's most informed generation. There are 1.3 billion Twitter accounts. 330 million of those accounts are active. Of those 1.3 billion accounts, 23 million of those aren't even people. They're bots. If you don't know what a bot is, talk to anyone under 20 or 25 and they'll let you know what that is. Twitter can handle up to 18 quintillion account users. So they've got a little space to grow. Many, many more souls to be informed. It's six times more expensive to advertise on Twitter than it is Facebook, but getting our advertising information out on Twitter is yielding a 29% more successful response rate than even Facebook on Twitter. It costs $200,000 to promote a brand on Twitter, legitimately promote a brand on Twitter for just 24 hours. If Twitter was to take their income and divide it evenly over all of their employees, each employee would make $488,000 a year. The average person who has an active Twitter account spends 2.15 hours a day on that particular social media platform. There's 500 million active Instagram accounts. There are 40 billion pictures that have been shared on Instagram since its inception. You know Facebook well, don't you? There are 2.2 billion accounts and 1.5 billion are active daily, most of them on a mobile device. 1.45 billion overall are active either on a laptop, a desktop, or a mobile device. There are 10 million likes or shares daily on Facebook. We are an incredibly well-informed culture, and those are just three social media platforms. We, we know much about athletics and medicine and psychology and theology and just about every aspect of information in our culture we are layered with, whether it's legitimate information or illegitimate, we are layered with data, aren't we? We are an incredibly saturated culture with information, not just about things, but about each other. 
We live in a world of scientific, academic, medical, and educational breakthroughs. Our society is consumed constantly, being challenged in every way to advance knowledge of their field, their profession, to help a particular cause or people group. The more you know, the more you can help yourself, and the more you can help others. After all, knowledge is power, right? Knowledge is power. Thomas Jefferson used the phrase, and by the way, he actually borrowed that phrase from a Latin philosopher. But Thomas Jefferson used that phrase, knowledge is power, in his correspondence on at least four occasions, each time in connection with the establishment of the University of Virginia and the Commonwealth of Virginia. In an 1817 letter to George Tickner, Jefferson equated knowledge with power, safety, and happiness. He said this, this last establishment, a state university, will probably be within a mile of Charlottesville and four from Monticello. If the system should be adopted at all by our legislature who meet within a week from this time, my hopes, however, are kept in check by the ordinary character of our state legislatures, the members of which do not generally possess information enough to perceive the important truths that knowledge is power, that knowledge is safety, and that knowledge is happiness. Certainly, the more we know, the more power, safety, and happiness we all experience, at least to some degree. What kind of knowledge, though, changes an individual and their human condition? What information is needed to change the very nature of a person? What data can permanently change the way an individual lives and, and forever give them the ability to have power over any vice they may have in their life? We found that education is unsuccessful in stopping school shootings. We know that hatred reigns in our culture primarily seen in our political culture, but more close to home and our children often in various ways. The combination of medicine, science, and education has proven radically unsuccessful in curbing the opioid addiction crisis in our nation. Sexual sin is pandemic and smiled upon in our culture, so much so that the physical maladies that our high school and college students incur from living immoral lifestyles with multiple partners has caused an incurable, an incurable HPV virus. Now parents convince their children to take meds to prevent the virus and to continue on with their immoral living as apparently immorality is kind of like a rite of passage to anyone that has a libido. And a myriad of high school and college students are medicated to stay the effects of the virus that they already have. Alcoholism reigns. There certainly is no blue dot on the horizon of stopping that vice and actually no blue dot on the horizon of any personal unsaved 
person's horizon of actually stopping drinking, let alone being drunk. I have a friend of mine who works in the corporate offices for Anheuser-Busch at a particular office out in the West Coast in California, and uh, this friend that I've been uh, sharing Christ with, and God willing, have lunch with him again this week, um, his son has reported back to him that uh, it is Anheuser-Busch's uh, goal to own the global market on alcohol. And the reason why they have that goal is because there are so many local breweries that are popping up by the hundreds and thousands all over the country, and every community wants to have its own brew, that it's actually affecting their market share. So Anheuser-Busch's market philosophy now is if you can't beat them, join them, or if you can't beat them, buy them. Keep your name, keep your brew, keep it locally, but we want to buy you, and we are going to give you a price that you cannot refuse. And we're not only going to do that with every winery and brewery in the United States. Our goal, they say, now is global. We want to own every brewery and every winery globally. We want to have one world control of alcohol. And, of course, we all know that they're always going to encourage people to drink wisely. Just make sure that a significant part of your pocketbook goes to us. Man can't control their passions. We have enough money and material advantage in our culture to create ways to mask, actually, the effects of hatred, addiction, and immorality. But our culture continues to drown in a sea of God's good graces, doesn't it? So mere knowledge can bring a measure of power, safety, and happiness, but we know any massive gains in these areas have proven unsuccessful to change the, in, the individual human condition. For every one soul that claims academic, scientific, and medicinal knowledge and that it has changed them in some way, there are 100,000 more who are drowning in the flood of the consequences of their unparalleled, undisciplined lifestyles lived controlled by their passions. So what is solely, solely responsible for changing the human condition and offering it the opportunity to live out from under the influence of sin and vice on a personal level. One author on this text, Bennett, said this, only an intelligent commitment of a life in the light of God's gift of salvation will suffice and help. Only an intelligent commitment of a life in the light of God's gift of salvation can curb the human condition. There remains one fundamental obligation for every human being to know and embrace before they can live life under the influence of God's divine help and not merely man's knowledge is power. They must hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and they must surrender their hearts to its authority to know freedom from sin. 
This is the story of chapters 12 to 16 of the book of Romans. The doctrine of salvation clearly explained in the first 11 chapters, once understood, once embraced, becomes the foundation for a transformed life lived by the power of God and not under the authority of sin. While the gospel is the foundation for spiritual transformation, the first two steps of chapter 12 become the foundation for practical living in our everyday experience. I want you to go back with me just to the last verse of chapter 11 for a little context here. The gospel really is summarized in this reality that we find here at the end of chapter 11 in verse 36. For from God, and through God and to God are all things to him be glory forever. From God. Think about this, folks. If indeed these three prepositional statements in Romans 11.36 apply to the triune God, think about it this way. For from God, the Father, and through Christ, his son, and unto the help of the growth of Christ's likeness, him, the Holy Spirit, are all things. To him be the glory forever. To God the Father be the glory forever. And that settles it. So from God, who's graciously given us salvation in Jesus Christ and an indwelling Holy Spirit to help explicate the person of Jesus Christ and his intentions in our life to live unto God, to him be the glory. Why? Because he is the only one that can ultimately, omnipotently transform an individual soul to miraculously compel it by grace, omnipotent grace, to live unto Christ and not unto sin. Only he gets glory for that. Man can never claim, though they do, ultimate glory for the change of the human condition. They can only claim partial success. Even in the most well-informed society in human history. We still can't fix us. But God's grace can. And he has you, who were once adulterers, who were once murderers. Did you know we have former murderers in our midst this morning? Who? (laughs) Doesn't matter. You know, we have former adulterers in our midst this morning? We have former drug addicts and drug dealers in our midst this morning. Opioid addicts, former. We have former strippers in our midst this morning. And you came to church thinking everyone looked so light, so great, looked like a religious Stepford Wives community, right? Like everyone's got this thing worked out. This cookie cut thing really works after all. I can never be like those people. Let me tell you, those are the kind of people you're sitting around. And let's say you were never caught up in one of those dark vices. You still know you were the worst sinner in all the world. 
And for those of us who are saved early in life, we know, we absolutely know that if we weren't saved at five, six, seven years old, exactly the kind of life we would have lived. I know the life I would have lived. And it scares me to death. Only God's grace can transform a heart dead in its trespasses and sins. And so, only God's grace can sustain a transformed life. After we are transformed by the grace of God, the same perpetuates Christ's likeness in our lives. So, the theological gospel portion of Romans transforms and teaches us of spiritual transformation, and it is the foundation upon now which we live. Many of us grew up in Christianity, and often, I will say this um, analytically, not critically, too much emphasis has been given to the theological portion of this book because we all truly enjoy the aspects, the theological aspects of the gospel. But often a sermon series on the book of Romans, if it takes two years to preach, two, one and three quarter of those years will be invested in the theological portion and we'll kind of give a pat on the back to the practical portion. And I think, we, I, think I want to be careful with that imbalance, if I could be so frank. Because, folks, I don't really believe any part of God's Word is less inspired or less helpful than another. Whether it be theological or practical, both are inspired and both are given for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. And we would all agree with that. But we have to preach the Word of God within its biblical proportions. We have to give as much attention to the practical as we do the theological, as the Bible would give it to us here. And I don't want us to, to glance over or misunderstand any applicational truism in these final chapters. Mu in his commentary in Romans says this, such an attitude betrays a basic misunderstanding of theology and its significance. All theology is practical and all practice, if it is truly Christian, is theological. Paul's gospel is deeply theological, but it is also eminently practical. The good news of Jesus Christ is intended to transform a person's life. Until individual Christians own and live out the theology, the gospel has not accomplished its purpose. And my friends, there are millions who are familiar with the gospel. Millions that know it and their lives have not changed yet. They can say, I'm saved because of what they know. And they can actually probably walk you through the old-fashioned Romans road. But the way they live, seven days a week, they've not been born again yet. Christians of any generation, whether you're first or third generation Christian or fourth, always know that a mere cognitive understanding, a mental, intellectual understanding of the gospel does not save you. 
You are not born again until your life changes. Until you have the DNA of God, of Jesus Christ, in your soul. And then he begins to show himself up more and more in your daily living, then less and less. And that's my fear, especially for second, third, and fourth generation believers here this morning. Your mere presence here and your mere ability to explicate the gospel does not prove you're born again. What's like tomorrow when you wake up and your feet hit the floor? How do you live your day? Does your life look more like Jesus Christ or does it mirror the world around you more and more? Has your faith in Christ become nothing more than a religious obligation on your calendar that you'll try to get to as often as you can just because that's what your parents did? Or have you been transformed on the inside and are you daily compelled by omnipotent grace to live for Jesus Christ increasingly, more passionately every day? Think about it. This pastor refuses to stand before his Savior someday, having failed to warn those who know a lot and live very little. This whole section begins with one pretty important word in verse 1 of chapter 12. It's a familiar word, therefore. I would like for you, if you take notes, to highlight three major therefores in this treatise of the gospel given to us by Paul in the book of Romans, because I think they're critical transition words to three major sections. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, in other words, after all that we know about being justified by faith in Christ Jesus, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember our outline by Alva J. McLean, condemnation, justification? Now that we know justification, therefore, we have all these wonderful realities in chapter 5, the fruits of justification, but then we come to chapter 6 and 7, which was all about growth in Christ's likeness, what we call in our neck of the woods progressive sanctification, right? Becoming more like Jesus a little bit every day. That's chapter 6 and 7. As a result of understanding growth in Christ's likeness, we come to chapter 8 and verse 1, and it says what? Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Justification, beautiful reality. Sanctification, beautiful assurances, chapter 8. We come to chapters 9 through 11, which we've been in studying the last few months, and there's realities of God's mercy to save and his whole uh, salvation historic landscape, and as a result of those blessings that were all included in Jew or Gentile, chapter 12 and verse 1. Therefore, Jew or Gentile, transformed by the grace of God, having understood the gospel, 
Therefore, I urge you, chapter 12 and verse 1, and then he just doesn't use the personal pronoun here, I urge you, but he emphasizes it doubly by the next word, which is brethren. There is an exclusive crowd, should I say, an exclusive remnant on this earth. You, brothers, same people, you are the only ones that can live out the gospel if you're truly transformed. We'll look at that in a little bit. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, if you're a note taker, I would like to divide these two verses up into two main points. And here they are. Verse 1, I would like to talk about our decisive commitment. Our decisive commitment, and this commitment is not generated by our own energy. This is, this is divine energy. This is God's grace that compels us to this divine commitment. And so what the Apostle Paul is doing here by speaking to the you who are brothers, he's saying this. This is, should be a slam dunk for you. It's not always going to be glorious. It's going to include some agony. But I'm just assuming. You understand what he's saying here? I'm assuming that this is a decisive commitment that you're going to make. This is... In other words, this is just what Christians do when they walk with God. So your decisive commitment. And then secondly, in verse number two, which I assure you we will not get to till next week because you're saying, Pastor Tim, if you've taken this long to get here, right, there's like, we're going to be here till the evening service, so Ron should just come up and start preaching. I promise you point two next week. Maybe the Lord will come before I get into point one, which would be super cool. But verse number two, your discerning lifestyle, your decisive commitment, and then number two, your discerning lifestyle. Now, in relationship to your decisive commitment, what I would like to do here is just go through phrase by phrase the nature of this decisive commitment and unpack its context, word by word and phrase by phrase. As we continue on investigating this text, I want you to understand something about the verbs used in each verse. There's a critical verb here in verse number 12, and it's the word present. It's the word present. That's in a particular tense in the Greek language, which means that there has got to be, in any Christian's life, a decisive memorable time where they said I'm going to do this by God's grace I'm going to do this by God's grace okay and then when we get down to verse 2 the verbs change they go from more of a historic reality of something that I decided in the past to this is the way I'm going to live every day that's why we even worded our main points differently. Your decisive commitment 
made in your past, and then this is what we do every day. This is your discernment we employ every day. And the verbs of verse 2 are mainly in what we call the present tense. Whether verb or verbal, they're in the present tense. This is something God's grace overwhelms our hearts to do each and every day as we seek to be spirit-governed, okay? Now, as we continue on in verse 1, therefore, Paul says here, I urge you, I urge you, and I think it's very important for you if you're a note-taker to write down here, he did not say, I command you. He does not say, I command you. Because someone that truly understands the grace of God knows what it means to be compelled by the grace of God to long to walk with God, not to have to walk with God. There's a big difference. The Mosaic law would command, right? Over 1,600 of them. Do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do that. The Apostle Paul is saying, right, Christ is replacement of the law. (laughs) When you own him, his grace overwhelms you. It compels you. So he's basically saying here, I'm I'm imploring you. (laughs) Take advantage of this grace. You have the capability via God's grace to do this. You're not necessarily going to do this because I'm doing it. Only follow me if I'm following Christ, but the same grace that transformed me is the same grace that transformed you, and its capability is equal to sustain us. So I urge you, I don't command you, I implore you. Certainly the New Testament has imperatives for the Christian life, but I think it's fundamental for us to understand how Paul begins the practical portion of this treatise of the gospel. He doesn't begin it with commands, but he begins it with the idea of grace. And what a privilege, what an opportunity it is for us to live by that grace. And I think we need to emphasize here, you brethren, I know we've already done this, but I'll just say this. The unnatural man cannot receive the things of God because they're foolishness to him. Some of us grew up in environments that we were given commands and rules long before we were taught about a relationship with Jesus Christ. And even after we learned about a relationship with Jesus Christ, and maybe you were truly born again, we were still taught a lot of rules and regulations, and we weren't related with much in growth in Christ-likeness. And and many of us have kind of marginalized ourselves because rules without relationship generally leads to rebellion. But I want to let you know Paul's heart here. I want to let you know what the biblical heart is here. We relate with folks we love the gospel until they come to know the gospel. But the relationship with them in the gospel does not end. The Christian life does not just become a cookie-cut box of rules after we're transformed. It's a walk in Christ-likeness. It's a gradual growth in Christ-likeness. And that's why we encourage so much helping each other grow ever so gradually around warm, spirit-saturated, word-saturated personal relationships. Parents, it's not the youth group's desire to raise your kids. 
and it's neither their obligation. It's not the Christian school's obligation to rear your children. Parents, you've got to relate with your kids unto Christ. And after they come to Christ, you've got to relate with them consistently as they gradually grow in Christ's likeness. And, and then we handle all of us here the same way in the local church, ever so gradually, ever so patiently. I implore you, by the grace of God that's sufficient for you, brothers, Christians respond to that. The only two people that don't respond to that typically are unsaved people or people who are saved that were grown up in a rules-based philosophy of life. But let's wash both of those away. And let's just assume here that we can implore each other as brothers to hear the Word of God and to act accordingly. He says here, I implore you, brethren, by the mercies of God. The word here literally is plural. And it's not your typical usage for the word mercy that we typically see in the New Testament. The the word translated here, mercy, has an Old Testament equivalent, and it simply means great compassion. That quality in God that moves him to deliver man from his state of being in bondage to sin and misery to saving activity in Jesus Christ. So compelled by the many mercies, the compassionate mercies of God, let alone the grace of God. Chapters 1 through 11. We can do this. We can do this. So my friends, What does the text say more succinctly and more personally about our individual existence here in relationship to this decisive commitment? He says, by the mercies of God, we have an opportunity that relates, first of all, to our person. To our person. Present your bodies. Present your bodies. Now, you have to understand, even though the the minority of the Roman church was Messianic Jews or Jews that had been converted converted to Christianity, Paul is speaking here because they're familiar with his Jewish background. He brings in some Jewish understanding of what a body is. And in Greek culture, the body would have been nothing more than uh, a cavity that housed the soul, right? When Paul, here in other passages, speak of the body and Hebraically, he's speaking of the whole person. So he's not merely speaking of our physical, he's speaking of our immaterial as well. Body, soul, spirit. spirit. So basically what he's saying here, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your personhood, your individuality. Your translation might say, I... I urge you by the mercies of God to present yourselves. And that's the idea here. No no part left behind of the human personhood, of the human person. Your body is not merely a receptacle that contains a soul. Paul says here, we all join together in doing something. And as we've already stated, the word present here is an incredibly strong verb. 
that now that you know this gospel, this is a point in time in your person, in your personal history, where you are compelled by God to make a choice, right? This is the aorist tense, right? With the idea and the reality that the choice that you make today will be developed for the rest of your life, ever so gradually. So what Paul's saying here is Christians can do carnal things, but Christians don't live carnal lifestyles. Not without the discipline of the Lord and going to see Jesus a little early. You are compelled, brothers. You will do this. The grace and mercy that's mine is yours. I've done it. I know his grace is sufficient for you. So let's do this together. The whole of you. All of you. Body, soul, spirit. As a matter of fact, if, as you've already underlined the word present your bodies, I want you to go back on your own time to Romans chapter 6. Three verses in that chapter, verse 13, verse 16, and verse 19. Three different times in that chapter, Paul uses the same word to remind us that it is our opportunity to commit our lives to a life of holiness and progressive sanctification. Uh, you can study that out on your own time, for sure. So the grace and mercy of God compel us to be opportunistic and presenting spiritually opportunistic presenting our personhood to God as a lifestyle well there's something that we can presuppose certainly we can presuppose that we can urge one another based on the mercies of God to live for God we, we've spoken of our person here but the third P underneath this decisive commitment not just presuppose on our person but what's the plan how do how do we do this? How do we, how do we maintenance initially this first foundational element to this lifestyle of living for God? He says here, uh, you're going to do so by this plan. You're presenting your personhood as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. This is the plan. You are a living and holy sacrifice. Can I just tell you whether in pagan culture or in Jewish culture, sacrifices didn't live. <laughs> right? They were slaughtered. Paul uses here again a Judaistic analogy only in a converse way. And I can kind of think he's probably thinking of what he wrote in Galatians 2.20. He says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, not under my own strength, but in the strength of Christ. You are a living sacrifice. In other words, you are put on public display before your spouse, your family, your friends, and everyone that something changed me and it wasn't me. Amen. Someone, by his grace and mercy, took away my swearing, took away my alcohol, took away my debauched music, right? took away being bondaged to my temper, my lethargy, my drug abuse, only omnipotence, right? right? Information's knowledge is not full power. The knowledge of God is full power, and only He can take these things away and cause me to grow 
in Christ's likeness. And, and I'm now a living testimony that I died to those things in Jesus Christ. <laughs> Something's got to die if you're going to live. Our old way of life died when we came to know Christ and now we, we live unto him and, and we do so by the grace of God. And it says here that this is a holy sacrifice and it's acceptable to God. Certainly we know we're positionally holy and, and so we're going to be pleasing to God because we're living as much as we can, embracing increasingly more and more of a degree of an understanding of his likeness and not just what we know, but how we live. And day by day, we seek to replicate a little bit more the life of Christ and the way he lived. So we've presupposed some things. We've understood the person that this involves and a little bit about the plan. And, and we'll finish here with this aspect of the plan. It says here that this is our spiritual service of worship. Can I tell you here that the word spiritual is where we get our English word Logical. Logical. It's logikos in the Greek language. And he's concluding this decisive commitment by saying, look, folks, after you all that you know, it's logical that you kind of do this. That kind of knowledge is power. It makes sense, <laughs> right? I have a friend who runs an opioid addiction clinic here in town, and and they keep giving information, information, information to the same number of people over and over and over. And that information's not changing them. And so they reach out to us and they say, how can we make this faith-based? Because they don't know what else to do. Amen. And so maybe a little knowledge of faith. And when you tell them it's not a church and it's not a religion, it's not just a faith, it's a person. What do they do? No, okay. I wanted to include you, but I'm not so interested anymore if you're going to drop that Jesus person into the conversation. Well, if you don't, how's it working out for you? And folks, I said, I don't say that. I don't mean to come across sarcastic. This is, this is death stuff. This is pandemic death stuff. But it just shows you the human condition. Eh, the only answer, Matt. Of course, we wouldn't do that with any other part of life if we were given one way to be successful. We grasp it and probably make a lot of money off of it. No, the Christian, this is logical. Yeah. Man, if you could change this old soul, certainly you could teach this old soul how to live. It just makes a lot of sense. So let's embrace it. That's the idea. That's the idea. Not in a rules-based you know, environment, but a relationship-based environment. Let's do this. This is logical. It's, your King James uh, might say, reasonable. Another translation says, true. The Phillips translation says, this is an intelligent thing to do. We give our lives when we understand and remain overwhelmed by his grace and mercy. And this is to be an intelligent, deliberate act. It's an intelligent act of worship. Now, this is the typical word for worship used in the New Testament. But we have to understand it's the giving of our whole selves of a living sacrifice. 
And we have a tendency to compartmentalize worship to Sunday mornings and Sunday nights and Wednesday nights. But Paul's saying is, you are a living sacrifice and you're presenting the whole of yourself all the time. This is what we do seven days a week. Intelligent, informed living, underpinned by the mercy of God, does not desire to premeditatively, impulsively be encumbered by the darkness and the vices of this world six days a week, only to present ourselves worthy to God on the seventh. This doesn't work that way. Your decisive commitment includes a presupposition. You're a brother. You're employed by mercy. It includes the whole of your person. And you have a pursuit and a plan to walk with God. And this decisive commitment is the foundation to help us understand what a discerning life looks like in verse number 2, which we'll get to next week. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, thank you for preserving this truth for us this morning. Thank you, Lord, for so clearly helping us by your Spirit today to understand the opportunity we have in this decisive commitment. By your grace, we've been saved. By your grace, we've been informed. And by your grace, I pray that we all assume that this is just a logical, reasonable, intelligent thing to do. Is to daily live for you and yearn to be overwhelmed by your grace, to know what it looks like to be more like our Savior and less like this old world we live in. Help us, Lord, as we, really, we personally relate with you in, our, in your word, relate the word to one another, and know your patience and grace with us, that you would develop here a congregation of people more and more overwhelmed by the grace and the graces of Christ's likeness than the vices of the world. In Christ's name we pray, amen.